We're reading out of John uh, 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Uh, You may be seated. Well, I'm not sure how to follow that up. That was fun, huh, kids? I know Scott made it sound like they're all the elders' kids. Only half of them. (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) All right. How you guys doing? Merry Christmas. It's Christmas Sunday, guys. I know it's like a week away, but this is the Sunday we're celebrating Christmas. We are on our fourth week of the Advent series. We'll finish up next week. Um, have, you guys, have you guys have been uh, joining along? You've been practicing doing this at home with your family. Anybody? Yeah? Oh, good. Some of you. Tonight, we're going to look at the incarnation. We're going to spend some time in John 1 and uh, look at what I think is one of the most known, best-known Bible stories, yet least understood. This is one of these Bible stories that people hear all the time, yet I think very few people understand it. All around the world this time of year, people are hearing this story, whether it's Linus and the Peanuts reciting Luke 2, or in Christmas carols that they hear and sing, they're hearing the story of this baby born in Bethlehem. They're remembering this story. I think that's one of the most amazing things about Christmas carols. It's the one time of year when everybody, without even knowing it, is is reminding themselves of the gospel. They're thinking about the gospel. 
this message of the incarnation is being spread. But lots of people have heard this story, the story of Christmas, but I'm not sure very, very many actually understand it. In fact, I think that's part of the, the whole thing behind it. Remember a few weeks ago, back when we were in 1 Timothy, which we'll finish up here in a few weeks, we looked at 1 Timothy 3, this break that Paul has in the middle of the letter, and this, I think, sums up this mystery of the incarnation. 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received in glory. Paul says that mystery, the incarnation, this is a great mystery. The incarnation, this truth of Christmas, is more than just a, a doctrine or a theological idea. It's more than just a concept that we have to adhere to. This is the object of contemplation. This is the object of worship. This is the thing that causes angels and humans alike to stare at this mystery and fall down and worship. This is the place where all we can do is, I think like Paul in Romans 11, all we can do is say, oh, the depths and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways. That's all we can do when we actually start to think about the incarnation that God came in flesh. He took on the form of a human. All you can do is stop and worship. Oh, the depths and the wisdom of God. And I think that's intentional. As soon as you start to feel like you're understanding it, it, it flees. It's a mystery intentionally. It's true joy to ponder for the rest of our lives this unfathomable mystery that God took on flesh, that the Creator took the form of a baby. This is true worship, to spend your life trying to understand this mystery of the Incarnation. Paul clearly states that the greatness of this mystery is without controversy. It's not even contested. There's no doubt, there's no question how great this mystery is. And Paul is not speaking as, as an, someone uninformed. Paul, you remember, oh, my iPad is freaking out. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew what was going on. He knew the scriptures. He knew mysteries. Yet for Paul, there's nothing greater than that baby in the manger. There's not even a debate. The fact that God would become a man 
should cause you to just stop and worship. No one can understand it. Paul says that in both heaven and on earth, we're all in agreement that the God-man, Jesus Christ, that that is a mystery. First Peter chapter 1, Peter says this, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was coming to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These are the things to which angels long to look. Peter says these are the things, this gospel is the things that angels, heavenly creatures, long to look at. It's not some trivial children's story that we just pass by once a year. What we celebrate on Christmas is the the object of worship for angels. They long to look at and try to understand this great mystery. The truth is, we can better understand, better say what is not true about the incarnation than what is true. Scholars throughout history have been trying to establish the playing field of what exactly the basic premise of the incarnation is so that you don't deviate from it. Four basic principles that they lay out. This is what it is. Christ is truly God. He is truly human. He is one person. And there are in him two distinct natures, divine and human. This is a mystery. That's the playing field. That's the the rules, the boundaries here. He is truly God and truly man. He is one person with two unique, distinct natures, both divine and human. His person is undivided. He is fully God and fully man in one undivided person. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead. And without ceasing to be what he has always been, the eternal Son of God has become human in Jesus. And Jesus, without ceasing to be fully human, is the eternal Son of God. That's amazing. Jesus is not just our divine King and our Maker, 
but he's our brother. He's one of us. We have to ask the question, what has God done in this person, Jesus? What is this? What is the desire in God's heart that would cause him to do such a thing? That forever he has now taken on flesh. For all eternity he is ruling as a human king. How did such a plan as the incarnation grow and develop in the mind of God? This is the object of contemplation. This is what we should be thinking about when we think about Christmas. Have you ever thought about that? Right now, amongst the Trinity, there's a human body, Jesus, still in flesh. He didn't let go of his flesh when he was raised to the right hand of the Father. Still a human, glorified, but still a human. At the center of the throne, we know from Revelation, there's a lamb, a descendant of David, born of a young Jewish woman, a human. The incarnation is a great mystery because it is designed to bring us to worship. It is designed not just for us to understand, but to bring us to the place of worship, to where we fall down and we say, we don't, we are not God, we don't know. I don't know how this works. God became a man. He took on our frame because he loves us. So when we celebrate Christmas, when we tell these stories, we sing these songs, we read the Bible stories, what we are looking at is this great mystery. Have you taken time this Advent season to slow down and to allow that to provoke you to worship? Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his, somebody compiled a bunch of his writings around Advent, and one of, there's an Advent devotional. Has anybody read it? Good. Some of us. It's really good. He, he said this, the child in the manger is none other than God himself. Nothing greater can be said. God became a child. In the Jesus child of Mary lives the almighty God. Wait a minute. Don't speak. Stop thinking. Here he is, poor like us, miserable and helpless like us, a person of flesh and blood like us, our brother. And yet he is God. He is mighty. Where is the divinity? Where is the might of this child? In the divine love in which he became like us, his poverty in the manger is his might. In the might of love, he overcome the chasm be between God and humankind. He overcomes sin and death. Kneel down before this miserable manger, before this child of poor people, 
and repeat in faith the stammering words of the prophet, mighty God, and he will be your God and your might. Isn't that good? History is hinged on that event. At that manger, history, all of history is hinged. The whole Old Testament, all of the Old Testament is looking forward to that moment. As early as Genesis 3, we have the promise of the coming one, the Messiah who would be born and would crush the head of the serpent. Thousands of years of buildup developed this tension and this longing for the coming Messiah. Micah 5, 2, the last part says, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That's our Messiah. That's Jesus. Isaiah 7, therefore, Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, he, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, we've looked at these passages. For to us a child is born and a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no ends, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is the hinge point. All of the Old Testament prophets are looking forward to, eagerly waiting the revelation of God in this baby. And in the fullness of time, At the right appointed time, all the pieces were in place. Galatians 4, uh, 5 and 4, uh, sorry, Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5 says this. For when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. It happened. The fullness of time, there in a manger, in a little town, in poverty, this baby Jesus was born, in obscurity. And this is no trivial thing. This is not just a passing piece of history. Take a second and think what really happened in that manger. Like I said, this is the most talked about thing in Christianity, probably. God took on flesh, literal flesh. That's actually what the word incarnation means. We use it as shorthand to explain the second coming or sorry, the coming of the second member of the Trinity. But it means, it's the Latin translation, which means to become flesh. 
think chili con carne, with flesh, with meat. That's literally Jesus took on flesh. The Godhead became human. In our scripture that we read tonight, John, the prologue of John, which is so good, you could spend a long time just reading through and rereading that prologue. Um, we're going to spend some time and look at it tonight. The first chapter here of John is rich, steeped with Old Testament hyperlinks. John is doing amazing things the way he's tying this whole story together. N.T. Wright says this. He says, this book, John, is about the creator God acting in a new way within his much-loved creation. It is about the way in which this long story, which began in Genesis, has now reached its climax. The creator has always intended. And it will do this through the word. In Genesis 1, the climax of the creation is the creation of humans made in God's image. In John 1, the climax is the arrival of a human being, the word becoming flesh. Let's think about that word, word, for a minute. It's poetic the way John is using that. In the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was with God. What is a word? A word is a way of expressing something that's in your mind or concealed or hidden. It's a way of expressing something to someone else. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus is the expression of God. No one has known God, but we can see him in the word. He has made himself known to us. Verse 14 in, the, in John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and full of truth. God has revealed himself. E. Stanley Jones said this, this verse, the word becomes flesh, is the great divide. In all other religions, it's the word become word. It's a philosophy, a moralism, a system, a technique. But for all time and all men everywhere, the word has become flesh. The idea has become a fact, a person. He was God in his pre-incarnate state. He remained so in the incarnation. He didn't relinquish, relinquish his deity upon becoming a man. He was not made flesh, he became flesh. There's a difference. 
The Greek word for became there, it speaks of an entrance into a new condition. He became flesh. By becoming flesh, what John means is the invisible, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient God added to himself a human body and put himself under certain human limitations, yet without human sin. While still deity, still omniscient, omnipresent, he became localized in a body. While still deity and all-knowing, he lived a life as a human being. He thought with a human brain. He became exhausted. He broke into tears. He needed food. He got cold. He needed clothing, shelter. He gave us a picture of what the deity is like. The way John puts it, he lived in a tent in the midst of humanity. That tent was the human body. And in that form, Jesus remained. Absolute deity, truly man. He became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Again, these words are all really rich. That word dwelt, it's the same word we have for tabernacle. There's a clear callback to the tabernacle and the tent of meeting in the Old Testament when the glory came amongst the people. Once again, God is dwelling in the midst of his people. Like he did in the tent of meeting when the glory came and Moses would see God, again, God is dwelling amongst his people in the person of Jesus, in that baby in the manger. And when you see him, you see the glory of God, like Moses. That's what John says. When we see Jesus, we see the very glory of God. So the question is, why did Jesus have to come in flesh? Why? He could have come as a full-grown adult. He could have came anywhere, in any time, in any place. And if you think about it for a second, when you guys are parents, this is part where I know there's a lot of you that are parents. Raise your hand. <laughs> Babies are pretty um, helpless. Yeah? Babies don't provide much to you. Isn't that incredible that he chose to come and live as a baby? He could have came as a warring king. He could have came fully grown as the rider on the white horse ready to 
to do business. But he came as a baby. Somebody changed his diaper, took care of him, fed him. He came, I think five things here. He came in the flesh to show us what God is like. All other religions spectate, speculate about what God is like. All other religions guess. But our faith, Christianity, we shout, we know what God is like. There's a person in history that we point to, Jesus. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9, for in him the fullness of the, dwell, of the Godhead dwells bodily. The incarnation shows us how much he loved us. The incarnation reveals this passionate, zealous, pursuing heart of God that he will stop at no ends. Think about it. If he will take the form of a human, the form of a baby for you, what, what other lengths will he go? The incarnation demonstrates the unresenting, unrestrained love of God. There's nothing holding him back. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is a consuming fire. He is moved by love, and he will secure the object of his affections at any cost. His love for you never quits, never slows, never gives up. That's what the incarnation shows us. It never stops hoping. Second thing, he came in flesh to experience the weakness of humanity. Luke 2 tells us that the child grew and became strong. He was, grew in wisdom. He grew in favor. Hebrews 4 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Third thing, he took on flesh to provide a substitutionary sacrifice that was adequate for the sin of all humanity. John Stott says this, there is no one who can make this, who can make this satisfaction except God himself. But there is no one who ought to make it except a man. Otherwise, man does not make satisfaction. Therefore, it is necessary that the one who is the God-man 
should make it. He is our mediator. He is one who represents both mankind and deity together. Hebrews 10 says, Hebrews 10, 11, and 13, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Once and for all sacrifice. I read this quote a few weeks ago. My favorite Christmas quote here. It's from a German theologian from the late 1200s. Said this, Jesus became a human being because God the compassionate one could not suffer and lacked a back to be beaten. God needed a back like our backs on which to receive blows and thereby to perform compassion as well as to preach it. He had to have flesh so that he could endure the beatings that we deserved for our, for our sins. He had to have flesh so that when he was being whipped and scourged, he would be paying for our sickness. He had to have flesh to have hands to take the nails and a brow to receive the crown of thorns pushed on his head. He had to have flesh because we deserved death, pain, suffering, and curse, and he took it all on himself. He had to have flesh. The mediator between God and humanity would have to be nothing less than God and nothing less than fully human. Otherwise, the mediatorship would have been impossible. No one could have fully accomplished what he did. Fourth thing. He took on flesh to secure and to guarantee our redemption. Second Corinthians 5.19 God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When God took on flesh and the person Jesus, he was making a clear statement that he would redeem humanity. He likened humanity to himself. He became one of us. The incarnation was God's big yes to humanity. The fifth thing here. He took on flesh to offer humanity a pattern and an example of the fullness of human life. Jesus stands at the apex of all experience. He is fully God and fully man. 
He is not just the highest revelation of the Father to us. He is the highest revelation of what a man, what human can be to us. He is awesome, he is king, he is lord, he is master, but he is also our brother. He shows us what God is like and he shows us what you are made to be like. We are to abide in him and walk the way he did, to live the way he did. He is our example. We are to imitate him. And I think that brings us to where we are with this today. Anytime I want to look at one of these passages or a theological idea, I always want to bring it back to, what does that mean for me now? This is not just a concept or, or a theory. We're getting ready to close out another crazy year, yeah? Uh, it's a crazy holiday season. Everybody's busy, running around. You guys have your gifts wrapped yet? <laughs> no. There's a, apparently there's another COVID variant running around. It's in the news. There's social and political pressure going crazy from every side. Divisiveness, anger, frustration. You guys, can you feel it? Am I the only one? What does the incarnation mean in the midst of all that? What is this reality of the God-man in the form of a baby? What does that mean in the midst of all of that? The truth, the incarnation, is the hinge, it's the center point of our faith. Our God left his heavenly domain. He was born in Bethlehem. He took on our humanity so that we might share in his blessedness. He took on our sins so that we might share in his righteousness. He entered the domain of the enemy of the oppressive reign to free us and to transform us. Jesus is God's loving embodiment in the world. He's the picture of the Godhead. Jesus is perfectly manifest. He perfectly shows us what God is like. He is the image of God, the perfect expression of God's very existence. That's why Jesus could say something, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. Yet, from the earliest of our faith, of earliest Christianity, Christians have understood that the incarnation was not just about what God did once upon a time. It's not just an abstract historical fact. It's not just a fairy tale. Jesus reveals who God really is. 
The incarnation tells us something about what God is always doing. It also tells us about the incarnation of God, what he is doing, how he is manifesting himself today. While there is only one incarnate Son of God, there is only one Jesus, God is always embodying himself in the world. He does this primarily through us, through those of us who submit our lives to the lordship and leadership of Jesus. We call that being a disciple. And when we do that, when we submit all of our lives to the lordship and leadership of Jesus, we embody Christ. This is why the followers of Jesus collectively are referred to as the body of Christ. We are, in a very real sense, an extension of Jesus' earthly body. We are God's hands and his feet, his mouth in the world. We, as followers of Jesus, are called to imitate him in all things. This includes, I think, imitating that, that incarnational love, that driving love that drove him to do something as crazy as taking on flesh. We are called to live incarnationally. We are called to manifest God to the world. Jesus reveals that God is a God who is willing to set aside all of heaven to become fully present to those who don't deserve him. That's what God is like. And so too, we are called to be a people who are willing to set aside everything, all the comforts and the conveniences of our own lives to be fully present and to bring the gospel, the good news of that baby born in that manger. This is what it means to be imitators of God and to live in the love as Christ loved us. We are to live incarnationally. We are to display who God is through the way that we live and what he is like. God himself, he is continuing to be embodied. He took on flesh in Jesus and he is continued, continuing to be embodied through the people who call him Lord and Master. That's our challenge, that's our call tonight. As you go into this next week, as you celebrate Christmas with family, as you finish your shopping, as things get crazy and busy, how are we embodying Jesus? How is the world around us, your unbelieving family and friends, how are they seeing what Jesus is like through your conversation, through your posture, 
through your care and your love and your attention? How are they seeing who Jesus is? Are they getting a picture of the God-man or are they getting more frustration, more divisiveness, more, frust- more irritation, more rhetoric? There is a lost and hurting community around us. We can all feel it. People are scared, they're angry, and they're in need of a savior. And we know him. We know him. We can point to him. And what a better time than Christmas to be able to say, look at that baby. Look what God did. Think about what God did. I'm going to pray the worship team can come back up. Father, help us. All too often, we fail to embody you rightly. Too often, we fail to represent you the way that you represent the Father. We fail to imitate you. Jesus, I pray that in this next week as we reflect on the God-man, as we reflect on that baby, that we would remember the high calling of displaying your goodness to a lost and dying world. God, remind us again of the gospel. Remind us again that that baby was born to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. That baby in the manger is the Lamb of God. Jesus, remind us again. We love you and we bless you. Amen.